Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast, the podcast providing speed stability to a quickly changing educational environment. My guest today is my good friend and inspiration, Tom McGrath, who is based in New York, has had a storied career in finance, management, universities, social settings, entrepreneurship, athletics, across decades and states. So Tom is here today, not necessarily because he's an expert in parenting or education. I asked Tom here because I know he will speak honestly from his own perspective about what he's experienced as a parent. And I'm trusting him to be courageous in saying what he really thinks, and I know he will, because <laughs> that's that's how he operates. So hi, Tom. Hey, Hardy. Good morning to you, John. <laughs> yeah, it's the evening here in Shanghai, but I appreciate the uh, that you got up so early to do this with me. Happy to do it. So my first question for you is, what is it like being a parent in New York? Well, overall, you know, I would say it's amazing, particularly so after the election in 2016. I think it's in many ways the best place to be. In part because Oliver, my four and a half year old, has been exposed to you know the 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 more raw elements of society the truly downtrodden mm-hmm. that people talk about related to the statue of liberty and mm-hmm. what it means to um you know be an outsider in america and so we live in hell's kitchen we take the underground to take him to his preschool and he's exposed to every walk of life. We live in a diverse neighborhood that's ethnically diverse, gender identity diverse, socioeconomically diverse. There's a shelter across the street. There's plenty of rich people around. We come across people with no legs all the time, people who are panhandling all the time. We come across homeless people who live on the train, live in the subways. So as a parent, I couldn't be happier that he's exposed to all these walks of life. In Miami, where we lived before this, we had a house, two cars. Now we don't have any cars, and he lives in an elevator building. And I think the exposure for him to think of home as a place you go in an elevator into a tiny apartment is great and formative for him. So being here in New York is overall pretty great to be as a parent. Valerie, my girlfriend, we raise Oliver together. I think has gotten a little tired of the hectic intensity that is New York City. She spent the summer with Oliver in Europe and they had a much more meandering, leisurely pace and much more open spaces. And she certainly felt that culture shock coming back this fall. Central Park, which is a walk away from where we live, though highly rated, is still quite an underrated asset for the people of the city mm-hmm. of New York. And he loves going there. Why? Yeah, just because it's better than than people realize, and particularly the north side. I mean, you can feel like you're in the middle of nowhere in the north end of Central Park, as opposed to one of the more highly densely populated cities of the world. He loves going there, climbing the rocks, ripping around, knowing the violin player who plays music for money in the park. So you mentioned the international aspect of um, Valerie taking Oliver to Europe for the summer. Talk a little bit about what it's like raising a bilingual child or working to raise a bilingual child. It's kind of funny. Frequently, frankly, it can be quite alienating as a the person who doesn't speak the second language in the house, which is German, you know, which is a bit of a dead language, I, I would add. <laughs> okay, German-speaking listeners, don't be offended. 
it's interesting. It's interesting to watch him fluently go from one language to the other without thinking about it, without hesitating. You know, he's at the point where he speaks them so frequently that he uses the two languages interchangeably in the same sentence. It's funny to watch mm-hmm. him look for a word in English that he knows very well in German. Why did you pick German? Uh, just because that's, that's a language Valerie's fluent in. So she's half Austrian, half British, and, Got and it. was raised with her mother speaking German. Her father is the Brit, but he's fluent in German as well. And she spent part of her time growing up in in Austria. What's been interesting to me as a parent and with relationship to this language is because he spent so much time with his mom initially while I was at work and she was the primary caregiver, German was his first language. But when we got to New York and enrolled him in his first preschool, which was a German-based preschool, And even though it's German-based, the kids' play language became English because some of the kids aren't raised in a German home. They're just trying to add German as a language outside of home. English quickly became the the play language, and, and Oliver then quickly converted. And I would say his first language of choice now is English. Interesting. So let's talk about school for a little bit. You are on, if he's four and a half, you are on the cusp or you are at, or maybe you're past the cusp in New York of deciding where, you, where, where you're going to send him to school once kindergarten starts. What's the verdict or what's the thought process and what, what were your considerations? So we're very much in the middle of the deciding process. It's, it's not past the cusp at all. You know, we probably will have to make a decision by no later than February, but we're evaluating a variety of different options, a couple public options and a couple private options. It's a bit torturous in New York City. Valerie and I are both of like mindset that we hate the idea of an elite private education, that you're better off by spending time around peers who are wealthy and affluent. And that's how you'll get ahead in life is by who you know, not what you know. And if you're around other wealthy elites, then your opportunity for success will be greater is complete anathema to both of us. I mean, we hate that idea of spending time around rich kids. We'd much rather have a diverse Mm -hmm. experience in a school that may not do as well with test scores than to be in privileged school around privileged people who feel privileged and act privileged in a school that has higher test scores. We would much rather prefer the former to the latter. And yet here we are finding ourselves likely planning to enroll Oliver in one private school or another for a couple of distinct other reasons. The first is he's been in preschool, a German preschool for three years, and Valerie would like to continue his German speaking development in school for at least another couple of years, two to three years, while his neural center of his brain and his language centers of his brain are still in full development feeling like, you know, if he loses that, it's gone forever. And I agree with that. I understand that. I think that there's other opportunities for him to maintain his German. And what I'm really interested in, in terms of his potential private school, is the school called the Portfolio School in New York City, which is an experiential-based learning program that I think is somewhat Montessori-based or similar to Montessori. What I compare it to Mm -hmm. is a little bit of homeschooling. Friends of ours have raised their six kids by homeschooling them, and they're now to the point where they're in their late teens, early teens to early 20s. They are uh, the most creative, interesting kids you could ever imagine. 
one is a high schooler joined a startup, created an app, think has equity in a company. The older daughter uh, works for Apple, lives in the Bay Area, lives in San Francisco, doesn't own a car, but owns a sailboat. One of their sons didn't like the local senator in uh, central Illinois, and so in college ran for mm-hmm. public office. The senator was running unopposed, and he ran for government. What's appealing about homeschooling? Well, I think, well, one, the results. I mean, the way these kids turned out are just the most creative, yep. interesting, complex kids I know of in young adults I know. Mm-hmm. What I think the connection is between the portfolio school and homeschooling is they talk a lot about agency and having the kids be responsible for their own learning and how they learn is really up to the kids as opposed to the teacher pushing information or the parents cajoling or pushing information or, you know, getting them to do homework. Mm-hmm. It's really both such scenarios, both Dee, the mother of the, the six kids who was responsible for a lot of the homeschooling, portfolio school talk about agency, having kids be responsible for their own education, their own way of learning. And to me, I feel like I didn't learn that until college and then really till after college. That is actually the key to learning is understanding things in your own way and being responsible for how you learn and your own knowledge base. I just finished a book by John Couch, who was the former education head of Apple, like knew Steve Jobs really well, was like one of the first employees at Apple. And he just wrote a book about mainly technology and education. But one of the things that he talks about a lot in the book is how one of the under-realized truths about education technology is that probably the best place for adaptive technologies that can work with kids is in homeschooling. And he doesn't make a connection beyond that, but I do, which is that it's ironic because typically when I think of homeschoolers I kind of, and homeschooling parents, the stereotype is kind of the granola, crunchy, anti-technology, very controlled screen time families that all you can do is read books, some of which I see here in China too. I'm curious, what do you, when you think about homeschooling, let's just say on the long shot you were to do it, do you envision it as being technologically heavy or technologically absent or something between? I would like to see it as technologically absent. I'm, you know, I hate technology personally. I'm a bit of a curmudgeon and misanthrope. I'm a bit of a, a Luddite. And uh, so I'm against technology personally. So I don't want to see my son do it. I see the way his brain is sucked into the screen that he's in front of when he ever is in front of an iPad or a computer or a phone. And I have the same opinion, frankly. I mean, I like the idea of homeschooling. Yeah, seemed granola, crunchy, yogurt. <laughs> get in touch with your feelings. I, you know, no, none of that appeals to me. 0.0 appeals to me. But what I've seen, and I, you know, and I do know some kids who are homeschooled like that, I think, and that's not the experience I'm looking for. The one I am looking for is agency, empowerment, and owning your own education. Now, I don't think I have the patience or the creativity to be a homeschooling parent myself. That sounds like a ton of work that, that I don't know that I know how to So invest. the kids you knew who were homeschooled, were they uh, homeschooled with a lot of technology or was it kind of, was it the same model you're looking at? Yeah, good question. Some of the kids I'm thinking of were learning before certainly personal devices like iPhones and iPads and tablets were available. They obviously had computers, but that was a thing you went to as opposed to carried around with you every everywhere. So some of them just predated the technology. But these kids that I'm talking about that are super creative, I'm sure they had access to screens throughout their education. How do you think that your parents' decision-making about where to send you to school differed from how you're thinking about sending your kid to school? 
Well, night and day, my parents didn't think about where to send me to school. They knew that the district that we lived in outside of Joliet, Illinois, which is outside of Chicago, was fine schools, but that was it. I don't think their decision was to move to where we moved because of the schools. I think they just wanted a place in the suburbs that was fun and pleasant and good neighbors and had decent schools, but I don't think drove any of the decision-making about where we lived. And there was no second choice. I mean, it was just, this is the school you went to because this is where you live. So how much do you think parents today are either more or less making decisions about education like you are and uh, as opposed to their parents? Or do you th- are you kind of a, the uh, you know in the anomaly in the same amount that it was back in the day when your parents were doing it? I think probably everyone is doing it, but in particular, the people that the circles that I run in, in terms of socioeconomic groups, they're totally invested in it. To the idea that you're not going to get into the right college unless you get into the right preschool. Everything is such a heavily weighted decisions about my kid's life is going to be ruined if I, in every format, if they don't get into the right education, if they don't eat the right foods when they're growing up, if they don't have the right athletic exposure, if they don't learn competition through athletics, if they don't learn to be creative. And it's just this overprescribed raising your kid to be a perfect human being ideology that getting a lot of press about kids being overstressed and on medication at the age of 12 and 8 and 10. So it's it's a night and day world. I would say the different one difference is, you know, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, are you going to be in an elite school around elite people? And today versus, you know, the public school option versus today, am I maximizing every possible experience so my kid can win at the game of life? So the a lot of the parents who would have 10 years ago, 20 years ago, not thought much about the schools other than to say, well, everybody's moving to the suburbs. That's what the good schools are. I'll move to the suburbs and there'll be good schools. If that's maybe if that's changing or not changing, what, what do you, what's, and, and if that's motivating or not motivating your decision, because you said public schools are still potentially on the, in the running in some ways, what in your mind is working or not working in public schools? My concern is that there's only one school in New York that appeals to me. And it's this experiential based school that's private and that's the way they learn. And, you know, let me let me talk a little bit about the way they learn about why I think it's the only uh, school that is going to work. It's a one room schoolhouse. So five year olds are studying next to eight year olds studying next to 12 year olds. We're all working on the same project. And the idea you know, behind the title of the school of the portfolio is every learning experience is project based. At the end of the project, you present your project and you build a portfolio of your after 12 years of going to school of the things you've developed and and learned and so one project was making ice cream so they talk about the history of ice and when ice could be used to store food what that did for people's health and what that did for exploration and how we started migrating more around the world and how health was better because food was stored safely and then the chemical reaction of making ice cream, and then the math of measuring a quarter cup and a half cup of an ingredient, and then choosing to your taste palate what flavors you want to put together, in you know, which is building a little bit of creativity and a little bit of openness. And then you make your ice cream, and then you present your ice cream that you made, why you chose the flavors you did, and you explain a little bit about how it's made. That's the experiential learning piece that, like, as soon as I heard about it and watched it and learned it, like, hooked into me. Mm-hmm. Does the school have traditional classes and seat time and things and, and required locations for kids to be at certain times, or is it wide open in terms of how the student structures their day? 
it's not completely wide open, but mm-hmm. it's much closer to what you said. It's not seating time. There's no classrooms. It's a it's a big wide open room where there's a number of gathering tables, and kids break off into various groups at various times to collectively learn things, to collectively actually manipulate. There's like a learner lab, a maker's lab, where you're physically working with your hands and creating things with screws and welders and lights and Mm -hmm. batteries and things. Mm -hmm. And then there's individual tutoring, there's a chalkboard, there's, you know, math teaching. And so it's, it's all organic, kind of all going on at the same time. It's not like a 40-minute teaching period with a bell that moves on to something else. It, it's very organic. Yeah, so I, I worked with a school in New Delhi that's a project-based learning school. Their entire project for a four-year, for three or four years, was building a bicycle path from the school to the center of New Delhi. And they, had, they did everything, including the math, the chemistry, the politics, the local politics, the construction, the design. It was, uh, and they, they integrated it with, with the project, all, with all the disciplines. And kids will, never, kids will never forget that. Right, right, right. It's, a, it's an experience as much for probably the adults as it is for the kids. But tell me about that. Project-based learning resonates with you. What about other, for lack of a better word, brands in education these days, like International Baccalaureate, Advanced Placement, Common Core. Do those types of brands or those those are curricula as well, do those resonate with you? Were they ever a consideration for you or were those always kind of somehow far from what you were interested in? Yeah, they don't because it's all, to me, it's all a, a slightly different flavor of the same variety of education, which is your day is broken up into six to eight different periods. You're taught a subject matter. You go and sit in the desk. There's a teacher at the front of the room who imparts the information to you. And, you know, there's there's these creative schools that are public. Uh, there's, there's, you know, engineering high schools. There's art and dance high schools. There's the Maury Sundak School in Brooklyn, the author and cartoonist of The Wild Things. It's in Brooklyn. These are all public school options. And then there's like the school called the Blue School, which was started from the performers of the Blue Man Group, which is about as creative a group of people you can imagine. But it's all the same flavor. International baccalaureate IB schools are appealing because the curriculum is the same no matter where you live around the world. And we would like to envision Oliver growing up around the world, other cities. Yeah, other other cities in the U.S. and cities in Europe and you know, cities in Asia, or whatever. Uh, so that that format is appealing because you know there's not a lot of starting over that he would experience, but seems to be the same theme with slightly different varietals of eliciting that theme. To me, I was bored my entire school career. I say that all the time. Most student every day, most children at school are bored or overwhelmed. Yeah. And so I didn't find like any kind of true learning, I would say, until college. And frankly, it was really after college and working at the University of Chicago, where the philosophy of the school, uh, where the idea is most important, the best idea wins, that was imparted in the curriculum in 1892 by William Harper and John Rockefeller, pervades everything, including the working environment. I think I learned to think a lot more by working at the University of Chicago than I did in my you know, 12 years of education before that, or 
six, 16 years. So you, you talk a little bit about how giving your kid a competitive advantage, a leg up in the, in the, the game of life is kind of important to you, but it also sounds like it's not terribly important to you or it's not the primary driver for what you're going to choose for education. How important is that leg up or competitive advantage for you? And how do you balance that with your other considerations? Well, let me clarify. I hate the idea of any kind of leg up that is socioeconomically based. I mean, that's not at all the kind of leg up I'm looking for. And I have zero interest in that. And I, you know, it makes me want to throw up. The only leg up I want to give him is the ability for him to think for himself and to find his own way in the world. And so to me, that kind of leg up can be imparted to anybody anywhere, regardless of race, gender, identities, or socioeconomic status. And, and, and that's that's the only thing that I want in terms of a leg up is for him to be independent and to learn to be his own person. So what do you think about, what do you think about testing, standardized testing, adaptive test, uh, testing that's adaptive and tied to learning? What, what is your, what comes to mind when you think about testing is good and bad or weighty or not weighty or meaningful or not meaningful? Yeah, so um, I I honestly don't know much about it, but except that I it sounds stupid and, and that I hate it. It sounds like, you know, you're teaching to the test as opposed to learning what's valuable. I mean, you know, going back again to these six kids who were so homeschooled, their parents are friends of mine going back to grade school. And Billy, their father, he never tried to get a good grade. He always tried to understand the material. Standardized testing is, yeah, I think has really unfortunately dumbed down the the system by which we gauge whether people know material or not. Part of it is sorting kids. When I worked in Paris, I knew another private school in Paris that had no transcripts and no grades, no tests. And when a student would transfer out, they would keep a portfolio for the kid. And when the kid would transfer out, they would send to the new school literally a stack of paper and posters and books and things that the child had created and go, here's the kid <laughs> and give him a big stack, 10 inches high, full of stuff and say, this is the kid. Obviously, universities aren't going to do that when they're making evaluation choices of who they're going to expect, accept, especially in a, in a world of ranked schools where everything is hyper competitive and, and increasingly so. Believe me, I live in China. I see it. So there's a sorting a sorting function of tests. But then there's also a, an assessment leading to instruction, um, an assessment that actually informs instruction and lets people know what they need to do. If you're a parent doing it at home, you're doing that all the time. You're like checking to see if the kid understands what you're saying to them. And one-on-one, -on -one, it kind of just makes sense naturally and automatically. As soon as you start to have more kids, you've got to get a system. And the more kids you get and the more you try to standardize that system, the more likely you're going to have some type of standard testing or standard assessment procedures. And so it, it, it can be kind of that that can be kind of where it turns ugly. At some point, any school is going to need to provide information for the child leaving that's going to send them on a trajectory to their next learning institution. And this is where many people, we have a friend who works in kind of ed tech. This is where the, the micro-credentials movement's coming from, and, and it's applying to education like it's applying to everywhere else, where you can get some kind of proof you know something or can do something as a form of assessment, a way of showing accountability for what you've learned. You've answered my question, but I, I, I'm trying to understand if there's anything else, if, you, if that was a consideration or if that came up at any of the schools you liked. Well, you know, it, it didn't really come up with uh, the way we looked at schools, but philosophically, I don't know 
exactly how you would, besides the sorting function, how you would actually prevent those situations where you hear that people graduate from high school and don't know how to read exactly. without some kind of, as you said, system for measuring has how, how they've come along in terms of their education. That, that said, you know, there was this like micro documentary that I don't think it was ever turned into a full documentary, but I, you know, a feature film or anything like that, but I only saw like a probably a 10 minute segment that uh, Roger Moore did about education. Um, I think in um, Roger Moore, 007. Sorry. No, no, no. Um, oh, uh, oh, who's the guy who did Fahrenheit nine 11, Michael Moore, Michael Moore, Michael Moore. Sorry. That would have been funnier if it was 007. <laughs> yeah. It would have been pretty good too. <laughs> He was actually smarter than everybody gave him credit for. Exactly. But no, Michael Moore's documentary about the Swedish education system where there's no grades, there's no homework, there's tons of play, and yet the kids are supposed to be the best educated public school kids in the world. Do you know? Do, have you seen this thing from him, from Michael Moore? No, no, but I, I've heard about it. I have not seen it. I, I'm, I'll, I'll pull it up and I'll put it on the website too for other people who want to see it. Did I send you that article about the uh, the recent... The ranking. President of McAllister. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think that's a great sat satirical piece about the absurdity of... Tell us about that. Well, um, I'm going to misquote it and probably mischaracterize it, but the president of, I think it's McAllister Liberal Arts College, talked about the U.S. News and World Report rankings and how it's completely valueless in terms of telling you anything about how people are educated. It really just comes down to... How big is your endowment? And therefore, if you have a bigger endowment, how much resources do you have available for each student? And that really characterizes the ranking methodology of U.S. News and World Report that people are chasing year over year over year to try to make sure that they can be higher on the list so that they can attract more students to pay more tuition. And he ends with basically saying that the way to improve the way the ranking works is just to have every institution bid to be listed as the best school. And that would be the determining factor of how you show up higher on the ranking list is the more money you've paid for your position on the list. He said it would be more honest and transparent yeah, it was it was satire. Yes, yes, it was a scathing critique of the of the ranking system. It raises an important point, though, because exactly. I do live in China, and I'm well aware of the fact that the schools in China in every province are ranked with a number system by the government. And there is an incredible sense of competition in China. I was just listening to another podcast uh, where the former head of Google China, who is now a fund manager, was talking about the way entrepreneurs in China would crush American entrepreneurs because there's so much more tenacity and maybe desperation, but determination to do well. And part of that, he was arguing, is that China just has a much more competitive culture. And I can affirm that there is a definite sense among all the children here that you have to speak two languages, certainly, if not more, probably more. And you need to be educated at the best universities and they will pay through the nose to make sure and, and do whatever it takes, hire a consultant, play any game possible in order to get that leg up in a very traditionally straight up competitive, I want to get in the best school I can get my kid into way. It's a little bit different from, I think, the American ideal for a parent. What are you thinking about college with Oliver? <laughs> that, that he doesn't go. <laughs> that, he becomes a, that he becomes a carpenter and uh, real estate, you know, developer tycoon or whatever. <laughs> um, 
No, I mean, uh-huh. you know, I don't know. Uh, our mutual friend, John Cooper, was sending his kid to University of Michigan as an out-of-state resident. Whatever they say, tuition in college costs these days, $100,000 a year when you factor in tuition and room and board and everything. He's going to be the last kid who gets that kind of education. And in 20 years from now, college and education is going to be entirely different. And the startup that you and I both work for, I mean, that was a fundamental principle that uh, the Mm -hmm. founder had created as well. The way that even our colleges and our American colleges today function, which are the envy of the world in many places. I mean, I think Obama said one of our best resources as a country. I just don't think that style of education is going to exist for in 20 years. I think it'll be much more focused mm-hmm. on experience and developing experiences. I mean, the startup you and I worked for was very much about these learner labs, these maker labs, these quasi-internship experiences where you learn by doing. With knowledge available at your fingertips through the internet, you don't need knowledge as much anymore. I mean, all the things that you know better than I do. It's going to be how you apply the knowledge to the work. Yeah. So I think education will be much different than it will than it is today. So I don't know what I'm looking for. Given your interest in creating agency in Oliver and giving him the space to be able to do things, what what are you doing or what have you done that you feel like builds that other than maybe choosing the school? Um, I just think play. I mean, he's only four and a half. So I think it's just play and maybe how we engage in play and how we expose them to travel and new cultures, different cultures, and kind of allow him to, <laughs> he's had two haircuts in his entire life. He doesn't want to get his hair cut and he says it's his hair, so he's not going to cut it, is, you know, one aspect. Just trying to, as much as I was raised in a rule-oriented way by my parents, We don't have a lot of rules for him. We try to give him a lot of freedom to make decisions where he can that don't impact his safety or how he treats other people in society. You came to parenting a little older than maybe some other parents, certainly more so than the the generation of our parents. What do you you think that's given your kid? Uh, Longer telomeres, for starters. (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm probably a little bit more calm. I've thought more about my life and how the things that have worked in my life and haven't worked in my life. And I I think I have a better sense of what has worked for me and what hasn't. And so I've tried to avoid the things that haven't worked for me. I try to give him exposure to the things that have worked for me. And I'd say I'm probably a little less reactive as a parent Mm -hmm. than I would have been in my 20s, having become a father in my mid 40s. So you seem to find curriculum going back to the school thing, because I want to as I kind of as we're nearing the end, I have a couple big things that I guess I'm wondering, the audience that I'm envisioning for the show are people who are decision makers in schools and providing schools that are responsive to the kind of things that progressively minded parents want. You mentioned curriculum, quite frankly, as being one of the central things that you're interested in. I'm curious if there are other, what, what other, other things that have or have not been kind of meaningful to you when you look at schools like class size, school responsiveness to, to, to parent or student inquiries, per student spending, did I mention, um, facilities, sports, did I mention curriculum? teacher pay, teacher retention, you know, stuff like that. Well, project-based learning is, I call, I, I put that in the curriculum box, but maybe that's not, maybe that's not curriculum. Is that not curriculum to you? In my mind, it's not. It's, um, it's a manner of education or a, you know, an approach, which is, huh. yeah. Okay. 
curriculum, I think, is the okay. subject matter so, you're teaching. Okay. So are there any others other than approaches to learning? Are there any other, like, I don't know, if I, 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 I hesitate to use the word metrics, but metrics that you consider important when you'd be looking at a school? A lot of these schools that we're looking at are little schools, 10 mm. students per class, 20 year, two students per class. And at that level, and even bigger, you know, slightly bigger than that, um, if you had 50 students, you think about they wouldn't fe be fielding sports teams in the types of high schools that I'm used to, right? You know, football team, a basketball mm -hmm. team, a baseball team, soccer, cross country. There was enough sports. Any kid could be on any sport and sort of a leader in any sport almost if you wanted to get into it. And so that extracurricular activity of athletics would have to actually be an extracurricular at this kind of schools that I'm considering. And I think it's okay, but I, I have noticed myself noticing that, oh, this is definitely different how he would experience athletics outside of school. Traditional ones people look at are, are things like tuition or per student expenditures, facilities, teacher pay, teacher retention, management expertise, college placement rates, obviously location, rankings. Those are all things that people might consider kind of the traditional metrics that would drive what some of the big Silicon Valley guys that are trying to put together rankings that are meaningful nationally or internationally to determine school quality would look at? Yeah, to be honest, none of them are in consideration. I couldn't cite you mm -hmm. any statistics on the, the schools that we're looking at and how they perform in any of those metrics that you just mentioned. If we were going to go a traditional route of education with whatever variety associated, you know, varietal associated with it, I would look into how do these kids get placed in college from the simple metric of the one we talked about 10 minutes ago of, you know, how do you make sure a kid graduates from high school knowing how to read? I would probably look at if 30% of the kids graduated from high school and went to college, that would be a red flag for me. Um, well, I haven't considered looking at other metrics. So how about, uh, as a closing thought, recommendations you have for parents who maybe are a couple years behind you or parents who are exactly where you are, recommendations for resources, books, ideas, places to go, people to talk to that are particularly useful in the process of trying to figure out how to make this pretty life, pretty massive and personal and intimate life decision for them and their children. So there's a book that uh, was recommended to me from Dee, who, as I mentioned, is the parent of those six kids who are uh, were homeschooled, called uh, Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. And um, it was the book that she used to teach her kids to read. And Oliver's like, through lesson 22 of 100 lessons. It's valuable in my mind because the earlier you learn to read, the more you, again, can take responsibility for your own learning and your world is opened up because you can understand and learn and digest things, anything that you can mm -hmm. read about. Sure. So the earlier you read, the, the more exposure you get. So it's an effective book. We like it. It's hard. You know, Oliver's certainly working at it, but I would sort of recommend people pick that up. Uh, Teacher Child Great. Read in 100 Easy Lessons by Siegfried Engelman is the book. And then anything else, I guess, you know, don't believe the hype. On that note. Well, thanks for doing this, Dom. I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and talking so candidly with, with us. For what I'm trying to do with the podcast, this is, a, uh, this is a fundamental starting point, which is 
kind of getting a handle on where parents are and where they're going. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and talk with me. Yeah. Happy, you know, happy to have done it. Like what you're doing with it and uh, the ideas that you've spread in terms of advancing education, I think is, you know, more of what the world needs to hear as well. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another podcast talking about current events in education and, and some of the pressing issues that we face as we try to improve our schools for the next generation. Thanks for listening. Thank you.